You there? Take two. Can you hear me, Tai? Absolutely. Okay. Welcome to Freedom with Tai and Julio, aka Freedom with T and J. My name is Julio Scarce, and I'm Tai Williams. Awesome. Today we are going to be talking about the ethics of gummy worms. I just ate some gummy worms that I got at the gas station. Uh, when was the last time you had a gummy worm, Tai? It's pro- it's been like a good eight months, probably. Wow, that is a long time. Are you a yeah. vegan? No. Do you uh, not feel like you I... have the freedom to eat gummy worms? I I do have the freedom to eat them. I just don't regularly. Do you not like them? No, I'm very pro gummy worm. Well, okay, I will say when I was little, uh, I didn't eat gummy worms because I uh, I when I first became a vegetarian, I went like I was a vegetarian to the extent of like I wouldn't eat anything that resulted in an animal's death, which like gelatin is like a byproduct of animals death yeah um so, so i didn't eat gelatin and i wouldn't eat like cheese with rennet in it i guess i still don't really do eat cheese with you know rennet. there are vegetable based rennets i do i do actually the the cheese that i eat now and i do eat cheese still is with vegetable based rennet should i give up cheese probably is it a massive part of my diet yes um so cool uh yeah i was talking to our friend thomas Meinzen yesterday and he was telling me how he you know he's out in the wilderness right now counting birds and he was eating some cheese uh, outside of his car, and a little crumb of cheese fell on the floor, on the ground, and he was like, oh, something will eat that. And then he was like, wait, like, for that thing, for that, you know, fermented product of cow's milk to exist there, or to exist at all, is just such a strange thing that can only happen from human intervention. And I was like, yeah, this is very true. There's so many, like, I mean, Oreos, you know, that's real weird. This real, real weird. And like, there is, you know, there's white paste and, you know, crisp, uh, very dark brown things out there naturally occurring in the world. But there is, there's no Oreos. And uh, and yet there's Oreos everywhere. And I'm sure right now somewhere deep in the Amazon, there's like an Oreo that somebody dropped. It's just sitting there waiting to get eaten by some fungus. So how uh, how goes the mutual aid? Uh, 
deal? You know, do you feel like you're uh, resisting the the capitalist structures that control us? Do you feel like you're actually helping people or do you feel like all of your efforts are futile? Um, well, there's, I guess, a couple questions there. Uh, I don't feel like all our efforts are futile. Um, and I do feel like we are helping people, at least some people. Um, I think our vision of what it, this, like, our mutual aid group could be um, that I'm trying to create here in Lane County with Lane County Mutual Aid is far bigger than what we are doing right now. And I think it started with, like, this very kind of, like, grand vision. And now we are coming to the realization that, like, that was probably too much to go for right off the bat. Um, and that we really needed to focus on like quality interactions rather than just like, get, like growing really big, really fast. Yeah. So you realize um, that the like Silicon Valley move fast and break things ultra scaling wasn't a mo- a good model for community mutual aid and rather you should go the route of like traditional traditional grassroots organizing maybe maybe in a, in a world that's kind of like pre-technology in some ways i mean we obviously live with technology but imagining that technology isn't there to assist so you really have to make those human connections and those community connections strong yeah yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the things is, like, in the attempt to actually build a resilient organization that maintains its vision, like, we kind of have to, we have to focus on smaller relationships first. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think it's really, I, I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's really hard to have a rapidly growing organization that maintains a really strong, cohesive vision. Can you tell me about one small relationship that you have developed with a particular person in the last month that you believe has brought value to your movement? Yeah. Um, so basically the way that I got involved with this organization was like, um, I was seeing some stuff that needed to happen uh, in our community with regard to mutual aid. And I saw kind of what was going on in Seattle. And so I literally just like showed up to, I like contacted a bunch of my friends who I knew might be interested. (coughs) Um, and then just showed up to this one meeting of the neighborhood anarchists collective that I had never gone to before. Um, although I, I like knew of them. Wow. Pretty gutsy. Um, and then we just kind of like, planned something and uh so there's like uh, there's actually been a couple people but in particular there's a person named al who i have like become friends with recently and uh like literally have only met over zoom um or through like other video call you know like so yeah i guess this initial meeting was a zoom call well okay so the initial meeting was in person but al al wasn't at that like very original meeting um so like and they and like 
TJ Scott connected through some of those folks. And is uh, vibing with Al and like getting shit done together. Is that easy or does it take a lot of work? I mean, I think it's taken, it, it takes time to build trust. Um, and it takes effort. Um, and sometimes I think it's really, really hard to make a strong organization because you have to be able to work with the people who, and like just having the like, just having the like mission of the organization be what drives you is not necessarily what maintains people sticking it out. So like we had a lot of people who joined very quickly early on um, who weren't very well connected and who I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like we were working super well together. Well connected to you or well connected to their community? To each other. Okay. Got it. So basically we just like, you know, kind of pulled together this like random group of people and didn't spend enough time relationship building Mm. right off the bat. Um, So so, do you see that as a personal failure or an organizational failure or a technological failure? uh, I would say a combination of all three. I think video calls in particular, like, and like this kind of online digital organizing is a notable challenge um, and makes it harder to do the relationship building that has to happen. Um, And also in terms of organizational failure, it, I like, it was a, I think a struggle has been like, we literally just like started a group. We had no like notion of what exactly we were going to do. Um, other than we were going to promote mutual aid and Mm -hmm. we didn't have a vision of like how uh, or like who was going to be involved or like how we were going to interact with the community. Um, So there was really like no structure whatsoever. So it literally like just kind of was this very like very loose like network of people who were like, I want to do this work. Um, And I think during that time um like i don't think we actually lost that many people who were involved initially but i do think that like one thing i've noticed is that the people who like show up the most um and do the most work are the people who are most connected to and like have strong relationships with other people in the group Mm -hmm. um because they like there's like kind of this like ebbing and flowing that happens of people um, where, you know, like I might miss a meeting, but I know I have got friends in the group who I know will check up on me if I like can't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll show up in the future. But if I don't know anybody and I'm like, they aren't people who I trust or like feel like I'm in it with, then I don't have that same like level of dedication. And you're saying there's a perspective that other people might have. And and for me, I think okay. too. I think. Okay, cool. So, uh, I guess, are there clicks? Do you feel like there's clicks in your organization? Um, I th- I like I think there are like groups of friends within the organization. I don't think there's like 
competing cliques. Like, I don't think there's this, like, competitive attitude. It's very collaborative. Okay. Um, and there's no just, exclusivity or there's nobody that's regarded as, like, other within the group that that might cause damage to the group? Not, no, no, not right now. It, I think, like, we've been pretty intentional about, like, trying to promote, like, inclusivity. Um, but I will say that we don't represent, like, represent our community as well as we could. In what sense? Um, I think a lot of the people who are involved are people who are already, like, fairly involved in organizing in the community. Mm. Um, if that makes uh, and it's not like the goal of mutual aid is to really promote autonomy and uh, and like promote like sh- like resilient networks uh, of people um, who kind of just like take initiative on their own a little bit. Yeah, uh, like your neighborhood pods. Yeah, yeah. And that's not necessarily some like I would say the people who are involved in the organization are often people who are already involved in like labor organizing or climate justice organizing or, you know, like immigrant justice organizing. Like they're already like kind of involved in and like active in the community. It's, it doesn't feel like we've necessarily mobilized new people yet. Um, at least on the like <clears throat> facilitation basis, like the people who are trying to like make everything go. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And I think that's just like, that makes sense. Do you think that a certain level of education is required to execute what you're doing? Um, Not formal education, no. Um, But I do think that, like, mutual aid has a specific value set um, that is ascribed to it and is part of it. Um, So, like, I don't think you have to be educated to a specific level to be doing mutual aid. To be part of, and, and like, the people, but I will say, probably, what seems like the majority of people um, who are working on our project directly are like college um, educated. Are there people who are currently college students? Uh, yes. Is anybody who's in your kind of cohort or group uh, actively working during this pandemic? Yeah. Are you working? Not really. No. I like I am doing a lot of work outside of uh, this, but I'm not like work I'm not working for wages right now. Got it. Yeah, because of course this is a form of of work for sure even though it's not being compensated economically. Yeah. Would you, like, identify what the work you're doing as, like, care work? Uh, I don't know. 
uh, in part, yes. Like, do you feel like the success of what you're doing depends on a future outcome or that just by doing what you're doing now, it is successful? Like, basically, do you feel like mm, someone who is making food for someone and thereby providing uh, a value in the moment and providing sustenance for them to live a long life? Or do you feel more like you're working on kind of a political campaign where, of course, it matters what movement you're building, but to a, a great extent, the important thing is like a thing that happens down the line. Um, that's a good question. I don't know. Are you how, how familiar you are you with the like Black Panther Party's free breakfast program? Uh, treat me like I'm a third grader. From okay, uh, so, from Eugene. Um. Well, I'm gonna. This this might be like. This is gonna be a bad explanation of it because I don't feel like I'm super well educated on it. Either. That's fair. Um, but uh, I think like back in the 1960s and early 70s the Black Panther Party had these like this like free breakfast program that was essentially mutual aid and it was about building community power but they combined it with like an education program so it was like you would you would go and you would get free breakfast but you knew that it was part of this like larger political effort you know Mm -hmm. and I think those that, that free breakfast program was valuable beyond simply the material like food that it gave people and if you look back to that like program there's not necessarily a ton of like specific like legislative measures that changed as a result of it mm-hmm. um but i do think it was politically powerful yeah and of course and i think we're was- talking about it right now you know 50 years later yeah. Yeah. where and so i think that's a goal that we have is like to provide mutual aid and offer an education or like some kind of information that helps like drive people to build more resilient communities and like promote solidarity. Do you have someone who's, do you have like a historian or an archivist within your organization who's kind of, keeping track of the things you're trying to do like how do you think will you will this effort be remembered in 50 years and how will it be remembered will it be remembered as like oh a bunch of a bunch of young adults tried to help the community and did some things or what i guess so that's a twofold how do you think it will be remembered and how do you want to be remembered um ooh, that's a good question um i think that okay so he, i think the thing is is like this is a super like interesting time um and there's mutual aid projects and labor organizing that happen that's happening across the country that is like 
on a scale that we haven't seen in recent history. Um, and I don't think when that, you like, say recent history, do you mean the last 10 years, the last thousand years? What does that mean? Probably like last four. Okay, years. cool. Um, yeah. Um, like, you know, the, the amount of strikes that are happening right now are like far beyond what we've seen since really the 1960s. Um, the amount of like mobilization around different issues is, is kind of unprecedented. And the mutual aid mobilization is something we haven't seen since like the 1930s, since the depression era. Um, and so like, I want our project to be part of that constellation. Got it. Of like, uh, like I don't, I don't think that like Lane County Mutual Aid has some like magic formula that we are going to be doing that's going to make us like the group that everybody looks to. I think there are groups out there who are doing way better than we are on in a lot of ways, um, and for whatever reason. Um, uh, but I would, I would hope that we fit in within that like constellation of broad societal mobilization so that we are like contributing to that if that makes sense yeah cool that sounds great do you feel like your organization lacks the financial resources to do some of the things that other organizations are able to do Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're lacking in a couple of different resources. Like, I know that a lot of people have frustration with, like, what people call the nonprofit industrial complex, um, that is often, like, too apolitical while providing, like, charitable things. Um, but on the other hand, you know, a lot like a lot of nonprofits that have been around in the community for a long time have access to a lot of resources that are really important and are doing powerful work in materially making people's lives better. But that's not you. Or I, I mean I think we're doing good work in terms but of But you're not you're not a nonprofit. We're not a nonprofit and we don't have we like, you know, we haven't been active for you know, the past 15 years or 20 years, or in some case, 40 or 50 years um, to have built the like network or to have the staff in our community of people who can like, you know, if I had like eight people who could work full time on doing this project, yeah, of course it would be bigger and in like very, look very different than it does right now. Um, but we like don't have that, and we don't necessarily want that. Why not? Um, um, okay. Well, you're telling me if I gave you eight full-time, well-paid staff right now, you wouldn't take it? I don't know. Um, I think there is the unique aspect of what we're doing and the thing that I think is different is about like basically mobilizing people to organize themselves. Um, 
which is not necessarily something that can be centrally directed by a staff. But you couldn't use some help? I mean, we definitely could. I don't know. I don't, like, I don't, I don't know what that would look like is kind of where I'm at. Is like, I, I like haven't conceived of what would be different if that were the case. Okay. Well, what you if know? you had like a fund through which you could pay people for the time they do put in, you know, instead of having um, eight full-time people, you have, you know, the ability to pay people for the time they put in and maybe there's 56 people. We each get paid a seventh of a full-time salary because they're all working, you know, three hours a week, four hours a week, five hours a week. Um, I don't know. Right now we're trying to raise, we're like trying to raise money just to provide support generally to the community um, or to like community members who need support, which is not necessarily the people who are directly involved in this project. Um. And so, like, if but if you're supporting kind of people, wouldn't the idea be that they are directly involved? Isn't that the point of mutual um, aid? Is that if you're being supported, you're involved? Yes, but I think okay. I think the idea is like if we had enough money to fund like eight people, there are much, like needs that are more than our staffing would be, if that makes sense. So you'd rather give like a lot of strangers some material goods instead of providing eight good jobs to people in a time with massive unemployment? Yeah. It's a loaded yeah. question. <laughs> and I know it's, I, I know, because the thing is, is like many of the folks who are currently involved, um, or, like, there are a lot of people right now who are, like, less than a paycheck away from losing their homes or from not having a food, having food. Um, like, we get, we get calls every day from people who, like, really, really need immediate monetary support. And... And if you had $400,000, you would distribute those mortgage payments and rental payments and diaper assistance packages? Yeah. Oh, man. Now you're really testing me, Julio, because I don't, like, I haven't really conceived of what things would look like if we actually had a lot of I mean, the image like you're describing to me is one of short-term solutions where you put the money that you have in the hands of the rent seekers who are making people's lives miserable and you provide no long-term support. Whereas if you have people on staff who can build power among people and who are you know, given money to uh, be able to take care of themselves mentally and emotionally while they're doing that work, then maybe you can actually build power instead of just putting on band-aids. That's valid. Yeah. I hear that. Um, yeah. I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't have an answer yeah. for that. Right and now, you don't need honestly. an answer because nobody's going to give you money. 
I mean, we like we will get some money, and we will get enough money to provide some people groceries, and to, you know, maybe help some people with rent. And we're gonna continue like working on building more long term power in other ways. Huh. That's man. This is these are tough questions. Do you believe in building relationships with people in the owning class, the landlords, the landowners, let's say. Lord is a loaded term. Um, the business owners, the bankers, the you know, local executives. Do you believe in building relationships with those people in order to, mm, I guess, solicit assistance for the people who are suffering? Or do you believe that if you were to build those relationships, you'd be undermining your own long-term ability to build power? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, it's a question I've been thinking a lot about um, in multiple forms, but, you know, there, there's many wealthy people right now who are raising money, who are donating money, who are providing assistance. And I don't think that's bad per se, but I do think that there's a danger that in the same way that many people live their whole lives thinking that you shouldn't tax the rich because I could be rich someday that people will see rich people doing good things with their money and think, Oh, I would do those same good things if I had that money. And therefore like they, and, and they're doing good things. So we don't need to take their money from them, you know? Um, so, I mean, it, it reinforces the structures that exist but also it provides a safety net where a governmental one often doesn't exist. Um, and so I, I don't know. Uh, I think that the long-term building of power within the community is probably more important uh, than short-term survival. But short-term survival is very hard and very painful. And fear of not being able to survive the short term is, I believe, and I mean, this is a very uninformed opinion, but um, often the reason that organizing efforts like yours don't work in the end, you know, that, you know, people, the moment things can go back to normal, they will go back to normal because then they won't lose their house and they uh, will be able to feed their kids. And, but going back to normal also means allowing the old institutions to continue to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, in terms of like thinking of the like landowner or like owner class and working with them, um, I think 
I think that there's a distinction in many cases between working with, like, I think the question is, can you work with, like, an owning class without compromising your vision? Without compromising your mission? Or or your Your vision vision or mission, yeah. Yeah. So, like, the way that I think about that is, like, I think that actually, like, in a, in some ways, like, the rent strike stuff that's been ha- happening lately has been lacking in being too antagonistic to homeowners in general. Wait, sorry. That was a weird mix of words. It's been lacking in being too antagonistic. Are you saying it is too antagonistic or it's oh, not antagonistic sorry. enough? Yeah. Uh, no, no. I think in some cases it's been too antagonistic towards like just like random homeowners or rat or in some cases um more more so than like being too antagonistic towards random homeowners making it just a renter's issue um and not a rent and mortgage issue Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely Um, and i think because i think there's like a big distinction between like you know bell realty or like you know, the the groups that own, like, hundreds of apartment complexes and are managing those. Um, and, you know, a random person who owns or who has purchased a home and is paying off their mortgage. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, and, uh, and I think they're, like, building class consciousness can happen with people who are homeowners or home buyers as like and not just with renters is kind of the thing yeah i mean yeah it's so complex too though i mean you know there's there's so so much of large-scale real estate is investment and I'm not just saying, I mean, in San Francisco, there are examples of people who buy a property and then don't even rent it out to anyone. They just like let it sit empty and then they sell it for a significantly higher cost a few years later. Or at least that's their plan. But like when you see a small company buy a property that they rent out and then remodel and then sell, which is very common. That small company often doesn't have the cash on hand to buy that thing. Yeah. What they're doing is they're getting investments from, um, from lots of wealthy individuals. And then they're actually often buying insurance on that investment in case something were to happen, but I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know if everyone always buys insurance. Honestly, I think I was making up the insurance thing a little bit. I'm, I think that's a thing. <laughs> but regardless, you know, let's say you're a teacher, right? And your school district has 20% of your uh, pension invested in a mortgage, in a, in a real estate portfolio. And all the people who live in those places 
were to uh, were to stop paying rent, then that investment company wouldn't be able to sell that building or make any money. And so the 20% of the pension would disappear. And then let's say also that the stocks crash, then, you know, another 30 or 40% of that pension disappears. And suddenly somebody who's, you know, 65 retires only is getting, you know, 40% of what they planned on living on. And then, I mean, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do what you're saying. I'm just saying that like the system is so broken <laughs> that uh, certain actions like the pandemic, not that the pandemic was an action, but certain events can cause a domino effect that, that devastates other parts of the system. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And so I think, I was, well, well, oh, well, I think that building people power in a in big a big big people power is the only way to ensure that the domino effect doesn't wipe out, you know, too many unintended casualties. There's a weird selection of words, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. What were you gonna say? Oh no, I was I've just I was reading a little bit about like pensions with regard to like rent and mortgages. Uh, and 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 like some people were talking about like rent and mortgage freezes not being the the go to. Um, because it would crush pensions. Um, really? So I was right. Wow, yeah. look at me talking out of my ass and I'm right on the money. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I don't think I'm that smart. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, it's worth considering like just the fact that uh so many aspects of our economy depend on like a lot of things going exactly right. Like the US economy is just not built for like to support everybody in times of like crisis or in regular times even. You know, Julio, are you still there? Did you lose me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, hey. I can hear you. Okay, cool. I like took out an earbud. My, ear, I'm using like one old AirPod that my brother gave me, and then one of my newer AirPod Pros that I have. And I have like one, like the old one in the right ear and the other one in the left ear, and they're like switching back and forth. It's very confusing. Anyway, 
Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So basically, you need to keep doing what you're doing is what I'm getting from this conversation. But you need to not be afraid to go bigger and at the same time, go slower. Yeah. Like In terms of like building not just for the Yeah, story. like build 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 coalitions that can you know respond to multiple issues but don't try to build them too quickly you know i guess like i'm trying to think of a good metaphor <laughs> um i guess mm, you want to make uh, a slow roasted like I mean this this isn't very vegan but like a slow roasted whole cow that can feed like hundreds of people <laughs> versus like a, you know a, a pan seared skirt steak that can feed like one person metaphor doesn't work very well but yeah there's not any nuance to it but uh i mean i guess there is it takes a lot of effort and a lot of wood chips and a lot of heat and a lot of uh attention to detail to smoke a whole cow and you need a lot of people to work together but in the end, you can feed a lot of people. <laughs> uh, whereas one person with one pan can, you know, pan sear a skirt steak. But uh, then you only feed one person. So I guess the metaphor works. <laughs> Um, okay. Julio, I really appreciated this conversation, but I have to go or I've, yeah, yeah. Got a little bit of you can tell I was wrapping it up. But, <laughs> but I also, before we like go, how are you doing? Uh, I've spent a lot of the last five weeks binge watching TV. Uh, today I was watching Never Have I Ever and crying a lot. And then my mom called me and my parents, I hadn't thought I had parents in a couple of days and I just like started sobbing. And part of it was like the show made me feel a lot of feelings. And so I was kind of raw a little bit, but I was just feeling really lonely and I miss my mom and I miss my friends, including you. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I don't get out of the house enough. I mean, I could. There's nothing stopping me. And then I went for a long walk and a little run. But I'd eaten cake and strawberries right before, so I couldn't run very far or fast. But it was good. Um, and, yeah, like now I'm doing pretty good. 
I have these applications for these internships that I want to do, but there's like no deadline, but also the applications could disappear at any moment once it fills up. And so it's kind of this amorphous like yeah. anxiety. <laughs> um, and then I also have this like anxiety about like, you know, disappointing my parents by not getting my applications in on time and then them disappearing, which like is total like they don't care. Like they do like they just want me to be happy. But I have, yeah. you know, just like anything academic like this where they're in any way involved, even just like having told them about it makes me feel anxiety to like, you know, show them I'm worthy of, yeah. you know, their love. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and it's like, I never have those thoughts, but those that's like the feeling, you know. So, you know, but, you know, generally I'm good. Uh, when I was in Bulgaria in November, I judged, uh, you know, the speech and debate contest with Lucas. And yeah. I signed up <clears throat> to judge for the digital thing. And I just reminded Lucas on Sunday when we were in the video chat. And I just totally forgot. And it like was already due when I reminded Lucas and I kept forgetting. And then like yesterday I got an email. It was like, please do this. And so then I like 2 a.m. last night, my time here in San Francisco, which was already like daytime in Bulgaria. I just sat down and watched the videos. I watched them a couple times, which I'm not sure if you were supposed to do because like it's supposed to, I think, imitate a live performance, but there was this one kid, Varsity Poetry, who did these three poems uh, when I went to judge in November. And I, like, judged him then. And I, I hated it at the time. I thought it was, like, atrocious. And he'd chosen an awful selection of poems. And, like, there was n no room for nuance. And he just, like... I thought it was like trash, basically. I hope he never listens to this. <laughs> but um, and I don't. I mean, I don't think I was quite as scathing in my comments. But then, and then watching the video through the first time, I uh, I hated it again. But. I was I I wasn't even really watching. I was just like remembering what I'd seen before. But then when I went to so then I started writing this these comments that were like I was trying to be nice, but it was also kind of scathing. And then and then I went to rewatch it, and I no longer was thinking about that time before, and it was so good and. He worked on every single thing that I commented on in that original thing. And he brought out the nuance and he took his time and he, you know, had good gestures without being too extreme. I mean, and he, he connected these poems together. And it was, it was really, really quite beautiful. And 
I gave him all fives and I wrote about how amazing it was. And I gave him like a 10 out of 10 on the final score. And I was like, this is an exemplary performance. And I felt so good giving that one because like, it's like he really did it. I mean, clearly he, I mean, personally, I wouldn't have done the same poems again, (laughs) but he did. And he put in, he must have put in many hours of work in order to get it to where it was. And it's just like interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way he said it and the way he gesticulated and gestured and his emotion behind it. I mean, but he took it so far, you know, he really dug into what those poems meant. I mean, the the first time he performed, he was just kind of, he was so intense and kind of like yelling and like, felt like my was having like a railroad just like in hit my head over and over again like a train you know like a small train like a like a corgi sized train a little bigger than a corgi just boom anyway but it was so it was so good and i'm just i was blown away so that made me really happy um and also, I was, like, really astounded at how much the first time I thought it was, like, awful, but I just wasn't even seeing it, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So, I'm good. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Thank you for coming to the podcast. This has been Freedom with Tai and Julio. Uh, we will be here at least mm, two to three times a week, probably more, for at least the next five weeks, uh, but maybe longer. You got anything else you want to say, Tai? Wow. I don't. Okay. Good night, good morning, and good afternoon, everyone. <laughs>